The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're talking about time lapse and how it can be applied in the embryology lab. To discuss this, we've invited Dr. Marcos Meseguer, who is the scientific supervisor and senior embryologist at EVRMA Valencia. Um, Marcos is a world expert on time lapse, and he is very, very well known in this area. He is also extensively published in this uh, in this field. Dr. Meseguer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Andres. My pleasure. Let's let's jump right in. For for decades, we've based embryo selection on morphology largely. What are what are some of the issues with using this as a selection method? And why are you devoting so much of your time to other ways of evaluating embryos? Well, morphology, uh, of course, is the easiest, apparently the easiest way to uh, evaluate the embryo quality. It's based in single point morphological observation. So uh, from from decades, what we have done is just evaluate the embryos uh, every 24 hours from the time of fertilization up to day three or day five, depending on our or procedure or the way that we want to transfer the embryos. So every single day we were evaluating the number of cells initially in the cleavage stages, the symmetry of them. And then when reached the blastulation, well, the, which is the size of the final size of the blastocyst, the quality of the inner cell mass and the transfer to them. So it's a, it's a way to evaluate the quality of the embryo, which is based in, in somehow in some uh, very subjective parameters, especially in the blastocyst stage. Uh, because it's based, we, we need to uh, speculate which is the number of cells that apparently are forming the, the trophotoderm or the initial mass, which is the final size. We cannot measure anything. It's just the way that we see the embryo and how this is look like. So, uh, first of all, needs embryologists well-trained and with good experience, which is one of the problems that maybe we do not find in, in, in Spain, in which we have a, a big amount of embryologists well-trained, but this is not happening in other parts of the world. So that, that has been one of the main problems because in our hands is the, the way to select the best embryo for our patients to be transferred. So it's an important decision and we need to have a good experience evaluating uh, embryos and with a good quality, good quality way of assessment, uh, good quality control between us. So this, is, this was one of the problems that, that we, we want to solve uh, during the last years of, of research because we see especially in some of our patients, in particular, for example, in Spain, that we do a lot of outside donation. We used to have a, a big cohort of embryos with a good number of embryos to be selected. And then there is definitely a chance to select the best one for transfer, and we can do something else. So this is why uh, we have spent the last years, the last uh, 10 years, trying to improve this way of selection, which is very manual, very subjective, 
and maybe they really meant that also. So the, the main issues, as I understand it, are obviously inter-observer variability because it is so subjective, essentially. As a, as a general concept, we, we obviously all understand what the time-lapse is from regular photography. You basically take a lot of pictures at regular intervals, and then you, you put those together to make sort of a fast-forward or fast-paced video. Now, when was this first applied to embryology, and what were some of the initial challenges using this on embryos as opposed to generally doing a time lapse of anything else yes the, the, i mean time lapse is not is not new let's say it's not a new technology for sure we have been using a clinically in the last 10 years but even in 2010 when we started using it, it was not a new technology it really started to be used or at least we saw the first publications in humans in the late 90s around 97 the first paper published by by Payne was one of the, one of the reference, uh, Tori Hardason in Sweden. They started uh, using time-lapse technology, but was very, I mean, at that particular time, was just putting the, uh, using the microscope and trying to uh, include in the microscope like a small chamber in which we were able to put the embryos there, culture under apparently good conditions with uh, control, CO2 concentration in order to keep the embryos in an environment which is viable for growing. But at that particular time, they were only able to measure or to take pictures of embryos of only one embryo each time. And the way that was done at that particular time was taking pictures every five, 10 minutes, 15, 20, and then put all these pictures together to make a film. At that particular time, that was the only way to perform time-lapse. So it was very simple. Uh, conceptually, but complicated because the intention was to make a chamber of or an incubator in the microscope in order to make the embryos growing. So we learned a lot of things at that particular time about embryo development, but it was only a small amount of embryos. So the big change or the big um, step forward in the knowledge was when, when the, again, in the Nordic countries, in Denmark, they started to develop a system, also in the United States, um, in California, they started in Stanford. They also, in parallel, were, were doing the same thing. They started to be able to uh, record several embryos at the same time. So we were able to, uh, to take pictures of several embryos, 10, 20, up to 60, 96, for example, in the embryoscope. At the same time, taking pictures of all of them, and every 5, 10 minutes, putting it all together, making films. So at the end of the day, we were taking, uh, we were recording a lot of embryos. At the end of a week, we were having a good number of embryos uh, analyzed or at least uh, taking pictures to create a film. So we were starting to accumulate a big amount of data. And we started also to have a good knowledge about the meaning of this technology because it was not only putting together all these pictures to make a film. We started also using this system that were included in a good software to be able to identify parameters of the embryo development that were important for embryo selection. So the big change, I mean, let's say the, the biggest step in which we were able to use this technology clinically was when we were able to analyze many, many embryos at the same time, not only one. Right. So that, that was my kind of the next thing I wanted to ask you about a little bit. We're, we're now obviously able to record videos we have been for a while, of, of each developing embryo. And that, of course, generates tons of data. Um, 
obviously looking at these videos by themselves is not enough. That's just kind of the same morphology as we knew from before. Um, if we're if we're going to try to overcome the issues of that conventional embryo grading, we need a way of objectively measuring these parameters that we see in these videos. And that's kind of what you've been devoting a lot of your efforts in the last few years to, analyzing those parameters to seeing what of everything seen in that video actually matters and how much it matters and what doesn't. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've studied and what parameters you see matter, don't matter. Yeah, I mean, first of all, one of the things that we were definitely being, what we were able to do differently from what we used to do in the past is that in the same screen in the computer, we have at least the last picture of the embryo, of each one of the embryos of, of the patient. And then let's say just for an embryologist and using morphology, it, it was easier to select the best embryo for transfer because we were having all these embryos together and it was relatively easier to identify which ones was looking, which one was looking better. But right. exactly, that was one of the benefits, just simple. Okay, we have the last picture of each one of the embryos. The pictures are taken in the same way. So no different light, no different contrast, nothing. So they are in the same way of each, each picture. So from, from just a single morphology perspective was easier to identify the bigger embryo, the more expanded, or apparently the embryo with better inner cell mass, the bigger of so forth. That was one thing. Additionally to that, these new systems that appear in 2010 and forward uh, were able to take pictures in different focal planes, like a microscope. So when we were facing in front of the computer and using the software, we were able also to take pic to see different pictures at different planes, focal planes. So also it was like looking at the embryo in the microscope, but in your computer. So no difference between looking at the embryo in your microscope and in the computer, even better, because we were able to see all the embryos together. That was amazing. Additionally to that, we were able to use the, what is the timeline. These are different time periods of the embryo development. We were putting all the embryos together. And for example, we're having all the embryos in day three and then in blasters, okay, this embryo reached uh, day three, uh, the embryo with best morphology in day three was that one compared to the other. So by morphology, was easier to identify the best embryo. Additionally to that, those software included a manual system to, uh, let's say, annotate, we were doing annotations, to annotate the main events of embryo development. For example, the, the embryo cleaves to two cells, three, four. So every time that the embryo was cleaving, we were just doing an annotation. Additionally to that, we were able to include um, every time that we the decision, what was the level of fragmentation, what was the symmetry in every time of embryo development, if there was presence of not of multinucleation, because we were able to identify easy, let's say easier, no, but at least time dependent. Sometimes when you see the embryo, you are not able to see multinucleation. You were able also to measure with some tools of drawing tools of the softwares, what was the size of each blastomere and then identify the symmetry between them. When the embryo were reaching blastocyst, we were able to measure also which was the final size of the blastocyst, which was also the final size, the area of the inner cell mass, the thickness, the thickness of the zona pellucida. So it was a, a huge amount of uh, data that was collected, annotated manually and integrated in the software. So with all this information, just using 
standard, um, standard statistics, we just were able to identify which one of those parameters that we annotate manually, but let's say more objectively that the morphology to distinguish which one of them were more um, representative or more important for embryo selection, more relevant for identifying the embryo with best chance to implant, and also which in which order we were able to use it. So we start to use algorithm for embryo selection based on parameters that were numerical, objective, and identified by statistics that were able to generate an algorithm that initially were algorithm that was what is said a decision tree algorithm that was using three or four parameters to classify the embers in several categories like we do in morphology. The difference with morphology is that we were using more objective parameters than the morphology, which means that that way of selection was less influenced by the subjectivity of the embryologist, but also was still subjective because we were doing the annotations manually. So maybe for you, when you do the annotations from two to three cells, you press the button, at a different time that I'm doing, uh, that could be a potential source of uh, variability and also a potential source of, uh, of difference in the selection between the embryologists. This is why also we had at that particular time to make an effort trying to make all the annotations in the same way, all the embryologists in the clinic, which was also complicated. Right. And in addition to using the data produced by the time-lapse technology itself, I'm talking the videos, the images, the timing, the whole morphokinetics concept. You also have studied a lot combining these with other parameters outside of imaging um, in order to provide kind of the most accurate assessment possible and trying to add more than just the morphology. I want to know what are kind of some of the areas outside of morphology that you think are more promising. I know you've published a couple of very recent papers on this and tell us a little bit about those and how those are being implemented by you? Well, one of the things that we thought that we would, could be potentially interesting is, is to add to this way of evaluation, maybe based in morphology or morphokinetics, other parameters that we can uh, measure on the embryo. And some of them are related with the, with the embryo environment. For example, uh, we have spent the last two, three years analyzing the oxidation of the media in which the embryos are growing. And also, for example, which are the proteins that are present in the media or that maybe appear when the embryo is there or disappear or decrease the concentration because of the embryo, because the embryo is using that protein or is secreting or is producing in the media a different time of protein growth factor, um, interleukins, etc. So it, it was interesting because we know that in the past there have been efforts to use the non-invasive embryo assessment based on the secretions of the embryos, but only these parameters. And we thought, okay, maybe we are able to combine this with morphokinetics and we are able to improve the selection. And in the last four or five years, we have published papers in which we have demonstrated that if you add this additional parameter, for example, the level of oxidation in the media or the um, some the presence of some protein, for example, the leukin six, like one example, the presence of this protein or an increase in the concentration, we have seen that this can be added to the um, to the algorithm and improve the selection. Let's say that it helps us to identify even better which one is the best embryo. So the future now, what we see is 
well, no, it's not a future, it's a reality, is that com combining the, the analysis of the media, the environment, with the analysis of morphokinetics, the selection is improved and is very, very interesting in several ways to identify the best embryo or the embryo with more chance to implant or to identify the embryo more, with more chance to be chromosomically euploid. That's one thing that we have spent time. The other is also the, the, process, the all the annotations that we are doing actually for morphokinetics, those annotations can be done also automatically. That's a very interesting source of improvement because then we eliminate the variability of the embryologists doing the annotations. And we have realized that this is really working because now in one clinic in which we do all the annotations automatically, the annotations are always done in the same way. And we have realized that if we do that, also the morphogenetics can be used more accurately for embryo selection. So we improve the selection just by using the same parameters, but instead of doing manually, doing automatically. And a lot of this obviously is, is currently being investigated right now um, by, by your team and by many others around the world. Tell us a little bit currently at your center, how much do you actually rely on time-lapse for selection of embryos for actual patients? I am not talking research. I mean for actual regular everyday patients. Well, we, we have spent also time in the last years trying to uh, evaluate or to quantify which has been, I mean, like add-on, which has been the, the, the consequence of the introduction of this technology in the clinic. We initially performed several uh, big retrospective studies. Then we performed a randomized control trial. It's true that when we did the randomized control trial in our clinic, still we were doing the transition. We were still were in the transition between transferring day three and day five. I mean, we were doing like 60% day three, 40% day five, actually is all day five. And then the conclusions that we obtained for that study maybe are not applicable now because uh, the environment, the situation is different. And also at that particular time, we were still doing the culture of the embryos in the big, big box incubators and actually we're using Benstock. So at that time, we were able to demonstrate that the use of this technology was improving the, cell, the, the outcome, the implantation rate in around 10%. But we were not sure that this, this difference was because of the selection by itself or by the culture conditions that were definitely improved in the time-lapse incubators. Now that we're using only Benstock incubators and actually we are using, we are not, taking the embryos out of the incubator during five days. So the culture conditions are more or less the same in the best of incubators that in the timeless incubators. We must expect that if we see an improvement in the outcome should be related with the selection by itself. And in the last couple of years, we haven't taken a look. We have taken a look of our own data in IBA Valencia, in which we were doing around 50% of our cycles in timeless, 50% not. And still we are seeing an improvement in the outcome of 5%, which is very, very interesting. So we have better results using Tiglas technology. What is the situation now? In Valencia, we have invested a lot in the last couple of years, and we are able to run all of our cycles in Tiglas. So actually, all of our patients are using Tiglas. But it's true that in many places, uh, they ask to the expert, they ask me in many conferences, okay, if you should select some of your patients for doing uh, for using time-lapse uh, technology, which one of them should be the best? Well, if this technology is used basically to improve the selection, if we have more embryos available, this technology could be more useful. If you have only one embryo available for transfer, you cannot select anything. 
It's true that you get more information of the embryo, but you cannot select. Additionally to that, if you are running a PGT um, program, like a logistic, like uh, the logistics of the PGT program are definitely improved by this technology. Why? Because you are able to follow up each one of the blastocysts and you may potentially be able to do the biopsy in the right timing without taking each embryo from the incubator. Say, okay, identify this blastocyst is now ready for biopsy. The other one is still not, I'm going to wait a little bit more. So it's like life. Life, you know which embryo is ready for uh, for total biopsy. And that's our, our impression, but we, we haven't done still a serious study in many of the clinics of IBI and embryologists, but the feedback that I received is that we have the impression that we can uh, we can do more tofactorial biopsy. We do better tofactorial biopsy when we use Thailand's technology, and we have better results in our PGTA program. But it still, is something that we need to confirm. So so interesting. So you actually do all of the embryos currently. You do all of the embryos time lapse. Exactly, exactly. Is is because we have the chance in the last uh, two three years to invest in this technology because for us, like a clinic, not only, I mean, clinically we have seen the benefit, but definitely all the knowledge that we have created, all the uh, research that we are performing, and uh, all these things has been clearly a benefit in comparison with the, with the standard incubators. And also we see the feedback of the patients also, that they, they like it. They like it, the idea that we're going to go to the Emerson Tennis or we're going to give more feedback. Uh, for them. So for us, like a clinic has been a good investment economically because we are doing a lot of research and the research at the end is, is bringing us more more resources for doing more research for the embryologist, for training, for teaching, uh, many, many benefits. Of course, clinically also for the patients. Right. Now in, in two weeks on January 20th, you're going to be a panelist on one of our live journal clubs that we have online. Talking about the potential applications of part of what we're talking about today of machine learning and artificial intelligence um, to the field of IVF in in general, not just to embryology. Um, You're an embryologist. I assume that you probably didn't know much about artificial intelligence or neural networks or machine learning a few years ago. How, How did you kind of navigate this area i'm asking basically for say embryologists or doctors who would like to kind of get to know a little more about this but the whole field of the embryology part everybody's comfortable with but the part where we introduce a lot of new technology a lot of machine learning neural networks can you tell us a little bit number one you personally how you navigated all of that new area and give us kind of a a dummy explanation of a very basic explanation on what is machine learning and what are neural networks in what regards to embryology? Well, um, what, what we know actually is we are taking a lot of decisions in to, related to our patients in the embryology field and also in the field of the reproductive medicine in general that are based in our personal knowledge about the scientific background that we have behind and this is helping us to take in decisions. For example, when we are starting a cycle in which is the dose of gonadotropin that we're going to use, which type of drugs we're going to use, when the patient is going to come to do folliculometries, for example, uh, to, to do a follow-up of the of the patient, or when we are going to, uh, which embryo we're going to select, or if we're going to do a PGT or not. 
So this type of decisions that we are doing in the lab are based in our knowledge. But we know that these type of decisions can be performed instead of using our knowledge, which is in one way or another affected by uh, the, the everyday may be different because of our, our um, I don't know, personal situation, or, or even because we study more or less. We know that all these, all these decisions can be done more, let's say, accurately if we were able to put all the information together and, and all this information will go uh, and, and output with a, with a decision. We always think that this can be improved. And between us, we know that there is one embryologist that likes to select the embryos in one way, another prefers to use using another way of selection or believes that the trophotone is better than the cell mass. And in the doctors and the decisions of the stimulation protocols is the same. So there's always a room of improvement, trying to eliminate the subjectivity that we're using with our patients that maybe is good, from some of us, but not from not for all of us. So in the last years, it has been a, an amazing uh, grow in the field of um, artificial intelligence because it has been used in our day by day. For example, in the cell phones, um, identification of uh, the faces, identification of of, uh, of uh, the labels in the in many things that we use in the supermarket. For example, there are many many fields of the of the technology in which we have seen that some of the activities that were done by the human beings have been replaced by the machines. So the same that has been done in our fields of uh, our lives can be also applied in medicine. So the intention of artificial intelligence was to try to replicate the decisions made by the, the doctors or the embryologists in our field, but done by the machine using the information which is already existing. So that's the idea of artificial intelligence, replicate the way that we take the decision. How this can be done? Well, initially it can be done, the simple way to do it is the concept of machine learning, because what we know, what we do is to use all the knowledge of the statistics that we have done in the last uh, years, we use this knowledge and we give that knowledge to the computers, for example, like a logistic regression, that is the way that we put several variables in, in one uh, calculation, and then we have an output with a prediction of, of a library, of an implantation. So this is a, a simple way of doing machine learning. A more complicated one is the artificial neural networks because there are like several logistic regressions done at the same time in which we put several variables and we have an output with a decision. This decision is going to another level of uh, neurons in which is combined with other variables trying to improve this uh, output, this, this decision. That's the way that uh, machine learning is working is is creating like uh, neurons in which each information is put together many uh, inputs are put together and then it's an output with a decision it's these networks that are created are at the final are ending with a final decision which is uh, the decision of using a protocol or selecting one embryo and the other this is more or less machine learning machine learning is making decisions using the statistics but using a computer is like a massive logistic regression. Uh, deep learning is a little bit different because, because in deep learning, we do, do not do any kind of intervention. It's just we give the information to the, all the information to the computer. We do not make any label. We do not make any opinion. We do not put any uh, information to the computer, but the computer know that we have, for example, 
several stimulation protocols available, and one of them are able to produce more oocytes than the other. Or we put several embryos to the computer, and the computer knows that one embryo implant and the other not. That's all. And the computer trying to find parameters in that image or in that uh, film, which can be linked with better outcome. So we don't teach to the computer. The computer trying to is trying to find a parameter that is linked with the outcome. So the interesting thing of the deep learning is that it can provide us information that is still were unknown for us. So it's a different way to know and even to create knowledge, which is amazing and very interesting because it can end up with uh, information that we never used before. So that's, let's say, deep learning is the most advanced way of doing artificial intelligence. The problem of deep learning is that needs a lot of information, big data, and machine learning can be done with less information. And of course, machine learning or deep learning, if we don't give good quality information to the computer, the output, the decision, can be also, uh, I mean, not of good quality, cannot be good, effective enough, let's say. Understood. So essentially what you're saying, my understanding of what you're saying is essentially a massive logistic regression. Deep learning requires a lot more data, but they both need very exactly. high quality data. The, the difference is deep learning is, on the other hand, not limited by what we already know. Exactly. It's like, for example, we have done studies of deep learning in the on the first 24 hours of the Ember development. And after this evaluation of the computer, the computer ends up with uh, uh, an analysis of the, of the um, membrane of the zygote and the aspect of the membrane, if it's flat or has some kind of uh, wrinkled uh, aspect. And this Calculation has been done automatically by the computer because he has seen that between uh, plastics that embryos that implanted or not, there were difference in the proportion of these uh, these zones of the membrane. So this is deep learning because we never, I mean, we we did not tell to the computer to measure this parameter of the of the embryo. It's just that the, it's, it was an information that was obtained by the computer and then uh, related with the outcome. Another thing is that we we just uh, let's say teach the computer how to um, measure um, the surface of the blastomere, and then he calculates the surface of the blastomere, the computer, and is able to link the surface with outcome. That's different because let's say that we are uh, teaching the computer or suggesting to the computer which is the parameter that needs to be evaluated. Of course, if we like human beings, we are not able to analyze. Imagine 100 parameters of the embryos all together at the same time with thousands of, uh, of numbers and be, being able to, to get a conclusion about that. Then we can use artificial neural networks because many, many parameters can put all together with a final decision. That's the machine learning style, let's say, and the deep learning is without human intervention. We don't tell to the computer which is the parameter that needs to be analyzed. He just give them thousands of images of embryos, and then the computer will figure out which one of the parameters that are in this image is relevant for, for the quality, for example. This is so interesting, Dr. Messer. I could geek out with you all day about, about this, but I wanted to ask you about something else a little bit as we, as we kind of near the end of our talk. A lot of it sounds like things that are being done today. A lot of us are doing a lot of this today, but a lot of this also sounds kind of like science fiction. Whenever there's something new, we always hear the same thing 
kind of no matter what field we're talking about. And in this specific aspect of embryology, we hear frequently that all of this kind of will eventually replace or eliminate the, the role of the embryologist. Now, you, you are an embryologist and you are trying to further this field. Um, what, what do you say to the people that think that embryologists are going to be replaced or what, what is your view on this? Well, actually, what I see is that uh, all this work that we are doing um, in uh, Valencia is giving uh, work, is giving jobs to many embryologists. For example, in my team, we have actually, I have six embryologists doing all the research in this field. So actually, it's, it's giving more position than eliminating. Uh, it's true that maybe it's changing our way of working. And some of the things that we actually are doing, we're doing, will be replaced by 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 the machine. Is I mean, it's not it's not something that is in the let's say it's in the near future. It's not far far away because actually the software of artificial intelligence, most of them are already available, and we, some of them even are commercially available, not only for research. So actually, for example, next year, uh, one of the devices that is in the market is going to be able to perform automatically everything. You just put the embryos there. In day five, it will tell you which embryo you should select. And also all the information about this embryo, quality, morphology, uh, the things that we normally evaluate, the ranking of the embryos will be directly transmitted to our uh, EMR. So we will not need anyone to take a look to the embryos to even put the information in our EMR. Everything will be done automatically. Maybe we need one embryologist to do the supervision. But the embryologist still will be needed because we have a lot of things to study, a lot of things to do to improve uh, our results, which are also interesting from a, from a scientific point of view, but also from an economical point of view, because every time that we invest our time trying to improve our uh, results, our efficiency is uh, interesting for public and private sector. So. I still see that in the next years will be still important for the field in that particular uh, process, which is selection. But the rest of the process that we're actually doing that are very manual, like microinjection, vitrification, et cetera, we still, we start to see systems that are able to do this automatically too. So also the, the risk is there that some of the process can be done also not related with artificial intelligence, uh, just machines that are able to perform automatic vitrification, automatic ICSI. So, and, and that particular thing is performed for, with, for people that is very, for embryologists that are very, very skilled, which we have a lot in, in Spain, it's true. We have a good uh, school of embryologists, but not in other parts of the world. So, I mean, the future is a little bit complicated, but this is why we need to, not to be simple embryologists, not simple technicians. We need to study a lot. We need to do research. We need to be, we don't, we should not be simple technicians. We need to do something else. That's, I think is the future of, of our profession. Just not going, not, not being simple embryologists, trying to be a little bit more than that. Yeah, I, I find that an interesting point of view. I always try to, you know, kind of draw the, the comparison with any any other new technology, any other industrial revolution. And of course, you know, the, the, the farmer whose work was replaced by a machine knows nothing about how the machine works. But this is very different because in your particular field, the farmer is also the mechanic and the engineer. 
that creates the tractor and that tests the tractor and that makes sure that the machine is working properly. And it's, it's very interesting that you kind of see the role not so much disappearing as rather shifting to more of a, of a sort of research or development more so than a day-to-day sort of patient care or in this particular case, embryo care. Not a technician, not a technician. It's true right. that one thing has changed for at least in my field or in, in, uh, in my research team. From from for first time this year, the ne- the new PhD students that are having in my program, instead of bringing a new embryologist, I have bring one bioinformatic and one engineer. So my it's the first time that I am directing a PhD of one engineer and one bioinformatic instead of embryologist. So what is true is that at least my, in my research, I having a combination of embryologists and bioinformatics and engineers. It's a perfect combination because when you bring an engineer who has no idea of embryology, so you have to teach him everything and you need an embryologist. So the combination is perfect. I, I see that they are working very, very well. It's a very good team of, uh, of people working together and it's really productive. We are, we are increasing our scientific productivity a lot since we are doing this uh, combination of different fields. And I, I never expected, when if you asked me that 10 years ago, I never expected to to do a, to be a PhD director of an engineer of a bioinformatics, and now right. it's a <laughs> it's a reality. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doctor Messeger. This has been so 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 interesting. Like I said, I could geek out with you about artificial intelligence and embryology all day, but this is all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. My pleasure. Thank you. Will you be back on our podcast? Of course. I awesome. always available. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Bye.